Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. I'm David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist here at JP Morgan Funds. On today's episode, we're going to talk about climate change and specifically what investment opportunities may spring from the global effort from both policymakers and private businesses to both address the causes of climate change and innovate to stave off the worst of its effects. Sustainable investing has increasingly come into focus from investors as they direct their cash towards companies doing well on environmental, social and government's metrics. In 2021, investment flows into sustainable funds netted nearly $70 billion, according to Morningstar, a 35% increase over 2020's high mark. To discuss the opportunities in tackling climate change, I've invited my colleague Mira Pandit, Global Market Strategist for JP Morgan and our in-house ESG specialist. So Mira, welcome back to Insights Now. Thanks for having me again. We've seen a consistent rise in global temperatures over the past few decades um, and some pretty extreme weather. Uh, and the UN put out a report last fall that called climate change a code red for humanity. It's clear that we need to tackle climate change head on. How are companies and policymakers acknowledging this? We're actually seeing meaningful acknowledgement from companies and policymakers that climate change is a real challenge and that they play a role in mitigating its impacts over time by, by getting a handle on greenhouse gases. So essentially 83 countries around the world representing about 74.2% of global greenhouse gas emissions, have committed to some sort of net zero target, essentially to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and over time also try to remove some of the, the greenhouse gas emissions they've already emitted. And I think the, the conversation around policymakers has been there for a while, but we're actually even seeing it on behalf of companies. So about two-thirds of the companies in the S&P 500 have set targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and about 90% of companies are putting out sustainability reports. So I think it's a great show of commitment on the public and private side, but of course, we actually have to see the investment. And the investment to achieve these goals is, that's needed is, is, is massive. You know, some people peg that at around $140 trillion dollars. If we divide that up by every year from now to, to 2050, that's roughly what we're spending on technology each and every year. So a huge number. And uh, McKinsey actually put out a report recently saying that that number could be as high as $275 trillion. So clearly the, the need is there. And this is really going to shape the landscape going forward. A crucial part of tackling climate change is commitment from policymakers and spending on on just to achieve those commitments. Now, we did see a record financial commitment from the Biden administration on climate spending, but that hasn't come to fruition yet. And the Build Back Better legislation, which contained it, is looking, frankly, mostly dead. So what's the outlook for U.S. climate spending? There's a couple of different pieces here. Uh, the first piece is some of the commitments that the administration has made. So the commitment there for the U.S. is to come up, cut emissions by about 50 percent versus 2005 by 2030. So that, that would take place over the next 10 years. And there's a number of other measures that have been proposed um, to reach 100% carbon pollution-free electricity by 2035, to reduce the use of hydrofluorocarbons, um, to, to limit methane leaks. So there's a number of different 
different things going on in the legislative front. Um, but in terms of spending, you know, we had this massive uh, proposal last year, and we've seen some of that come through through the infrastructure package. So that $1.2 trillion infrastructure package that passed last year does include some amount of money for infrastructure resiliency, um, about $15 billion for electric transport, and about $6 billion for Western water infrastructure. You know, clearly we can see that the, the water infrastructure is under quite a, a bit of duress out West. Um, but the bigger piece is what was in Build Back Better, which was about $555 billion, uh, which is about six times larger than the, the last largest climate measures um, from 2009. And that included a range of, of measures, um, tax credits, spending for clean energy technology and manufacturing, uh, some procurement funding as well. But the problem is, of course, that legislation essentially fell apart in December, given some of the concerns over inflation. But I think what the interesting thing is, is it didn't fall apart because of climate. So potentially, as we see um, Congress debating a, a new budget resolution, it, it could potentially find its way in there um, as maybe some of the bits and pieces of the Build Back Better legislation could find a home. But it, it's certainly still very much up in the air. Um, I do think it's, though, important that actually it's, it's not, not one of the sticking points. Um, the challenge is, though, if we don't see something in the next, call it, month or two, then we're, we're, we're likely to hit a bit of a dry spell because congressional um, members will really churn uh, their focus to the midterm elections in November. And, you know, I don't think it's a controversial thing to say that we're likely headed towards a divided government. Um, essentially, that the president's party has lost seats in the House in 17 out of the last 19 midterm elections um, and Senate seats in 13 out of the last 19. And those average losses from a House perspective have been about 27 seats. Um, in the Senate, that's about three or four seats. And, and remember, the Democratic majority in the House right now is about five seats. And in the Senate, we, we have a 50-50 Senate. So um, quite, a, quite challenging odds there. And if we do see a divided government, it's very unlikely that we're going to see meaningful climate spend um, thereafter during the rest of this administration. So a bit of a challenge there. Hopefully, we'll see some degree of spending. So China has also put a larger emphasis on curbing its greenhouse gas emissions in recent years, which is particularly important because China is actually the world's top emitter. But with China now focusing on reviving economic growth this year, will this derail their focus on climate? China is the largest single emitter of greenhouse gas emissions when we take a look at the, the share of total emissions. And it also consumes more than half of the world's coal and about 60% of its energy is coming from coal. So they don't necessarily have a great reputation when it comes to climate, but they actually have set a net zero target. Um, they're aiming to get to net zero by 2060, whereas many other places are thinking more like 2050, but they're just in a different place with their development. So they actually think their emissions will peak out around 2030 and, and then they'll be on this path to net zero. Um, and, you know, while they're having some short-term growth challenges, I don't necessarily think that this is going to derail their focus on climate because ultimately China wants to be the largest economy in the world. And that means it's going to have to make some strategic bets. And one of those strategic bets is, is decarbonization. Like there really isn't a clear global leader in decarbonization right now and, and climate, climate solutions. Um, so there's a, there's a bit of a race to, to be that. And... 
I think people scoff when they hear that. Oh, China? Yeah, right. Like, think about the coal usage and, you know, a number of the things I just mentioned. But actually, we've seen that they've made some policy progress. They do have a national emissions trading system that launched in 2021, and that covers about 50%, um, or sorry, about 40% of their, their emissions. Um, they expect to scale that up to get to closer to 50% over the next couple of years. So that is a, a major policy move that, you know, we actually do not have in a consistent way on a national basis in the U.S. So there is a, a carbon pricing angle there. But I'd also say, you know, if we think about the innovation and investment taking place there, it's it's massive. And, and actually, thanks to to some of our partners in our investment bank, their, their research there, I'm going to rattle off a couple of stats here because I just think they're, they're really staggering for some of the skeptics to hear. So China has one third of global solar and wind capacity. 50% of global electric vehicle passenger vehicles are in China, 98% of electric buses. Um, in 2019, it built over 70% of the world's solar panels, and it controls about 60% of manufacturing of the supply chain. And the supply chain piece actually is really critical of, of, of all of these pieces because this global energy transition that we are we are we are taking part in um, has massive implications on commodities. It's very resource intensive, and China, in some ways, has, has cornered different areas of the market. You know, it makes about 80% of the world's uh, lithium-ion battery cells. It processes about two-thirds of the world's cobalt, very important within electric vehicles. Um, so very much that the supply chain dominance is an important factor there. And even just the innovation going forward. So over the last decade, um, clean energy technology patents in China grew by about 35% per annum, whereas in the U.S. it grew by about 4%. So I do think it's very important to take a realistic look at China and what is going on on the ground as they prepare for this transition on so many different fronts. Turning to a, a different part of the world, uh, the, the conflict that we're seeing today with uh, uh, Russia's uh, partial or threatened invasion of Ukraine has revealed a glaring weakness in Europe's energy transition. Uh, while Europeans have aggressive net zero targets, they're heavily reliant on Russia for natural gas, and they are feeling the impacts of what shutting off the taps from Russia could look like. What does this tell you about Europe's energy transition? It tells me that the energy transition needs to speed up there. And it's glaringly obvious from what we're seeing in terms of some of the, the geopolitical conflict out in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Europe relies on Russia for about a third of its natural gas. Um, while natural gas is considered to be, you know, sort of a, a transition fuel, um, less dirty than other fossil fuels, but not quite renewable yet, um, while that's an important transition factor, at the same time, it presents this massive geopolitical vulnerability um, in which right now Europe is facing higher oil prices, higher natural gas prices, higher inflation, and a lot of that is coming from energy. And that could be very well a challenge for the European consumer and a bit of a headwind for growth. So I think what it shows is that Europe needs to really double down on its renewables and reconsider some of the places that perhaps it's turned away from a little bit. You know, Germany notably has, has turned away from nuclear when the reality is that's going to be a really important part, not just for Europe, but globally um, 
we think about the, the solutions in terms of what we have for renewables. And it also underscores the need not only in Europe, but globally for governments to really help facilitate this transition. It is truly a transition, not a switch. Um, it's not going to occur in a, a smoother, linear fashion. And I think this is a, a real vulnerability that certainly Europe has. Well, clearly global policymakers have the work cut out for them. Um, and that has, to some extent, shifted the focus on how the private sector could drive change through innovation. What are some of the opportunities and solutions we're seeing from the private sector to combat climate change? Well, we talked about the huge range of the investment needed. Is it $140 trillion? Is it $275 trillion? I mean, regardless of what that actual number ends up being, it's huge. Um, and that does represent a cost to many governments and, and companies that need to adapt, but it's also a, a serious form of, of revenue and, and, and profit generation for the companies that are actually coming up with some of these solutions and technologies. There are many companies that can really be the beneficiaries here. So the way I think about it is let's think about where the emissions are coming from and let's think about what the viable solutions are in that space. So I broadly think about energy generation, uh, transportation, food and water, um, and, and buildings and appliances, essentially energy efficiency. Let's dig into some of the dynamics in each of these areas, and starting with renewables. Energy is the biggest area here where 73% of greenhouse gas emissions are coming from different energy sources, whether it's energy used in industrial processes, transportation, uh, buildings. And globally right now, we're, we're getting about 5% of our energy today from areas like solar and wind. And that would need to grow to about 60% by 2050 in order to reach these net zero targets. Now, you know, regardless of whether it's possible to, to reach that or not, we certainly need to continue to, to invest and innovate in that space, especially given some of the, the political um, reluctance towards nuclear. Um, in the U.S., actually, we've grown from about 5% of usage of solar and wind to about 15%. And, and of course, people say, well, that's subsidies. And yes, subsidies have been very powerful over the last decade. But it's also that once you have these new entrants into market, they do innovate. They try to bring costs down. Um, that lowers the barriers to entry for, for others. They continue to make improvements and cut costs. And that really helps um, bring these types of things to scale. And what we've seen is that the cost of solar has come down by about 80% over the last decade. The cost of wind has come down by about 40%. So we are hopefully nearing an affordability tipping point where it's not just about sustainability, but also about, you know, the, the economics of this. Um, and it's not just let's build solar panels and wind farms. It's also what's the ecosystem around that that needs investment it's, um, it's how do you store it? How do you transport it? Do we need to make upgrades to the grid? It's all of those different things that will certainly provide opportunities uh, for different companies that can um, come up with solutions for those. Transportation's also been perceived as very poorly aligned, shall we put it, with the environmental standards. We have seen a huge push towards electric vehicles in recent years, but where do we stand on that globally? And what kind of policies do we need to actually get to mass adoption? 
So from an emissions standpoint, about 16% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from transportation. And the lion's share of that is really road transportation. You know, we think about airplanes and air travel as being a big source of that. It's actually, you know, the big lever to pull here is in road transportation. And that's why electric vehicles have been seen to be the, the critical solution in this space. Um, but we're far ways away from mass adoption in electric vehicles. It's certainly high growth, but it, it's small. So there's about 10 million EVs on the road today total. Now, the International Energy Agency says, based on a lot of the stated policies that are already out there, um, it, we should reach about 145 million EVs as a total um, piece of auto stock globally by about 2030. Now, that would still only be about 7% of the, the total cars on the road there. Um, but again, massive growth if you think about being at close to 10 million today. Um, and, and globally, that's not really a U.S.-dominated story. We actually anticipate that if, if we take a look at some of the, that reporting, that would be closer to about 50% of the EV market in China, um, roughly a third in the U.S., and only about 15% uh, in the U.S., sorry, you know, roughly 30% in Europe. So... Um, that actually puts the lion's share of the EVs in China and Europe as opposed to, to the U.S. Um, and there are policies that help get us there. It's not just simply the, the corporate practices. You know, about 20 countries actually have plans to ban uh, traditional cars over time or have some sort of EV targets. You know, that includes places like the U.K., China, Japan, a, a number of places across Europe. You know, China's goal is 100% EV sales by 2035. So people are, are putting out pretty lofty targets there. Uh, the U.S. itself has about 50% of all new vehicle sales should be EV by 2030. So it's out there from a policy perspective. And even from an automaker perspective, it's not, you know, we're not facing the resistance we did a few years ago. Um, about 18 out of the top 20 automakers globally have some sort of plans to either introduce or scale up EVs. So we could really see some impressive growth here. We've seen battery costs come down by about 90% over the last decade, so that is helping here. The, the critical point, while all this growth is so exciting, is that there are a lot of entrants into the market that will not be able to scale up, that don't have a viable product, that don't have revenues to speak of. So what we really want to focus on here is the automakers that do. I mean, if we think about a century ago, there were hundreds of automakers. Now in the U.S., there's like three or four primary ones. It's going to be a few winners and a lot of losers. So it's very important to be selective in the space and, and look for quality as this um, sector is really kind of getting off the ground. Turning to agriculture, which also seems to have a lot of room for improvement, as you recently wrote in a blog post. And, and by the way, we'll link this to the show notes here. Um, what are the opportunities that you see in sustainable food and water? You know, if we think about the food system globally, it's kind of like a, a, a classic market failure here, where you have about 9% of the global population undernourished, and yet about 17% of all food is wasted. And, and not only is that food wasted and not going to the people that need it, but it also produces, you know, as a whole, the food system, about 26% of greenhouse gas emissions. And a big piece of that is not only from the waste itself, but just from the agricultural processes involved in making food. And this kind of has a, a pretty negative feedback loop where the more waste, the more emissions. 
the more emissions kind of um, exacerbating the impacts of climate change, that makes the impacts of extreme weather uh, more prevalent, whether it's droughts or floods. When you see things like that, then you have spikes in food prices or, or sh food shortages. That, of course, makes you know the, the ability to feed people globally even more challenging. Um, more climate change equals, you know, depressed crop yields. So we're seeing all of these knock-on impacts, um, and, and it's really, you know, creating quite a quite a challenge across the board. Um, throw on top of that the issue of water scarcity as well, where agriculture consumes about seventy percent of the fresh water supply, and a lot of that is coming from pretty stressed sources. Uh, so it, it's a real challenge here, one that is certainly ripe for innovation. Actually, McKinsey in, um, estimates that agriculture is sort of one of the top five industries that is um, ripe for climate tech, and, and anywhere between $400 and $600 billion could be invested in the space by 2025. So what are those opportunities? Well, it, it's, a, it's a real mix here. Um, certainly, we need more efficient agricultural techniques and technologies. We need better waste and water management more sustainable fertilizers themselves. You've seen a rise in alternative meats and proteins to, to gear towards a more plant-based diet. Um, and we also need to improve our supply chain practices in terms of everything that gets lost along the way when we think about processing, packaging, transporting, storage. So every node along the food cycle, um, there's something that, that can be optimized or improved. And it's, it's not just about what resources we're using, but it's also how we're using them. How can we actually become more energy efficient? From an emissions standpoint, we see about 18% of emissions essentially coming from energy use in buildings. And while there are so many different innovations and many different stripes that need to be developed, I mean, let's get back to basics in terms of just being more efficient with what we already have. Um, another great stat from the International Ener Energy Agency, which basically says current technologies can double our global energy efficiency over the next two decades. So we have the tools, we just need to continue to deploy them. And this is actually an area where I think policy plays an important role when we think about upgrading standards for, for uh, energy efficiency and usage. Um, but more broadly, you know, how do we use better building materials? How do we upgrade appliances in both residences and commercial spaces? Let's think about technologies like air conditioning, heating, lighting. How do we, we employ more efficient um, products in that space? They exist. It's just about making sure that they get up to scale and are most widely used as opposed to some of the older technologies um, that we need to get rid of and upgrade because they are contributing a, you know, a massive slice of the problem. Clearly, there are a huge number of opportunities across many industries. Um, as investors, how do we think about implementing these ideas into portfolios? There's a spectrum of, of strategies. And I think that when people thought through how do they invest for a more environmentally sound future, for a long while, that meant let's just full scale exclude fossil fuels and energy companies from portfolios. And I think that there's a recognition that we can't just avoid something. We have to actually work towards fixing it. So there is actually much more of a recognition that there's differentiation between different types of energy companies that are expanding and improving their business models and technologies versus ones that are not. So I'd say where we're really gearing towards is a mix of 
Can you find best-in-class companies um, from an environmental perspective that are optimizing their practices and changing their businesses along, you know, any different stripe of industries? Or for investors who want to be a little bit more targeted in their efforts and a little bit more direct, can we think through some of the more thematic strategies that actually look at some of the companies creating some of these massive changes and innovations? So it's really a, a choice for investors. Do they want things that are kind of more core complements in portfolios, taking out a, a, a sleeve of their traditional U.S. large cap core and looking at something that is more ESG optimized? Or from a satellite approach, thinking about some of these more thematic investments. Um, I think that there's opportunities across all asset classes. You know, it's not just the equity space. You can also find opportunities within fixed income when we think about green bonds. Um, and also certainly in the alternative investment space, if we think about private equity companies and venture capital funding for some of these moonshot technologies that still need to be built and refined. So I, I think from investors, it's a lot about how you think about your risk and return, how you think about your time horizon and how you think about your liquidity. But certainly for any different type of need, there's a way to tailor some of these um, solutions um, into your portfolio. Well, certainly a lot to think about. So, so thank you very much for joining us, Mira. And thank you all for listening. Please tune in to our next episode, where I'll be joined by J.P. Morgan Chief Retirement Strategist Catherine Roy for discussion on retirement savings and planning for the long haul in this environment of heightened volatility and lower return expectations. Until then, I invite you to read or listen to my Notes in the Week Ahead podcast, where every Monday I share commentary on the latest in the markets and the economy to help you stay informed for the week ahead. For even more timely insights, you can also follow and subscribe to my content on LinkedIn. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.